This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 27 of Inside COVID-19. Coming up, a wide-ranging interview with Johnny Brumberg, CEO of Vitality Health International, who says the data from all over the world tells us we're right to fear COVID-19 and South Africa's precautions are fully justified. Also, more on the way the coronavirus is exposing unsustainable societal fractures around the world and is likely to do so in South Africa. Nobel Prize winner Bob Schiller explores the impact of just this kind of fear on the human psyche and a close look at what Wuhan shows our cities will be like in future. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. As always, first, the COVID-19 headlines today in South Africa's coronavirus infections jumped by a record 354 cases Wednesday. That's a rise of 7% to 5,350. This increase was partly due to 11,630 tests being done in the day, the highest yet, with a further indication of the storm that's coming reflected in a 3% score of positives on the cases that were tested. That too is a new high. Another 10 deaths were recorded, also the most on a single day, taking the total to 103. Four of the deceased were in their 80s. But among those who died was a 33-year-old woman who presented flu-like symptoms and low blood oxygen, but had no previously diagnosed comorbidities. As you'll hear in our interview with Dr. Johnny Bromberg, the lockdown has bought the country time to prepare, but data from elsewhere suggests peak infections and deaths are only likely to be registered in August or September. Stanlip Chief Economist Kevin Lings has poured cold water onto assertions that COVID-19 mortalities are little worse than seasonal flu. Lings says accurate data comparing current with past mortality rates is hard to source, but one country which does track such information well is the UK. And deaths there since mid-March have been more than double the country's weekly average of the past five years. Lings says... This is because UK coronavirus mortality data is not reflecting the full extent of the virus's impact because it only tracks deaths in hospitals. Many people have died without being tested for the coronavirus and he said, quote, stated differently, in the past two months COVID-19 has had a massive impact on the overall mortality rate of the UK. Globally, the COVID-19 cases and deaths continue on an upward trajectory, with infections now at almost 3.2 million and deaths past 225,000. The UK has surpassed Spain with 4,419 deaths Wednesday, taking its total to just over 26,000. That's third in the world behind the USA at 60,000 
and Italy is almost 28,000. The UK also has one of the highest per capita mortality rates now at 32.7 per 100,000 of population. Neighbour Ireland, which employed a lockdown two weeks earlier than Britain, is at 23 per 100,000, the same level as Sweden, the Scandinavian nation which warned its citizens to practice social distancing but did not lock down its economy. South Africa is at a fraction of these ratios, with a mortality rate of 0.16 per 100,000 residents. That's in line with another relative laggard, India, at 0.07. Brazil is thus far the worst hit of southern hemisphere countries, with a per capita mortality rate of 2.43, with Argentina at 0.47 and Australia at 0.36. All of those, though, less than one-tenth of what's going on in the northern hemisphere. Scientists do warn us these rates could change significantly as the southern hemisphere goes into its winter. Johnny Brumberg is with us. Um, business for South Africa, Johnny. You're looking after the healthcare stream there. Can you give us an update on the personal protection equipment that you're sourcing for healthcare workers? So there's been fantastic progress there, Alec. It's, it's a remarkable story over just a few weeks, four or five weeks of literally an army of volunteers who've come together and literally built a procurement machine that is, is doing remarkable things. So obviously there are very significant donors in the background who are bankrolling this, principally the Solidarity Fund, uh, but also um, NASPERS, which is doing a lot, the Motsepe Foundation, and Spire, which is the first round effort. And then what BSA has done is set up very sophisticated infrastructure. So first it's built a portal that allows suppliers to register and be validated and to upload what equipment they can sell and at what price. Then there's a whole process and people who ensure that these businesses are legit and that the equipment they're selling is of the appropriate quality and that the prices are within range. And then orders are placed and Imperial Health, which is one of the major health logistics companies, you know, um, does the procurement, brings in the, the equipment and then distributes it out uh, mainly to the public health care system on orders from the Department of Health or the provinces and also some to private hospitals and doctors because they're also struggling to get it. So, Pretty remarkable. There are approvals in with the funders in excess of a billion rand of money that's been made available. And I think that, that north of 500 million rands worth of orders have been placed and the rest of the billion and some change are in process. And if I'm not mistaken, roughly 20% of the items, I think it's as many as 40 million items are already in the country. And there's a lot more on the way. So uh, we do think that within a, a week or two, most of the gaps for the next six, eight weeks will be closed. And if you consider that just a couple of weeks ago, there was very little in the country. It's quite a remarkable achievement. When you say the gaps, so you've done some kind of analysis to say these are how many masks we're going to need, these are how many gloves and so on. Yes, so that actual uh, demand estimation is actually done by the Department of Health, backed up by 
some technical advisors, and they're updating that all the time. So they are the source of, if you like, the demand estimation. Then the BSA people have looked at what's available in the country at any point in time. That gives you, and the one minus the other is the gap. So the the one product that's been easiest to procure in quite large volumes are sort of simple surgical masks for healthcare workers. And that gap's completely closed now. And I think there's supply for a few months now. But the more complex masks, those so-called N95 respirators, surgical gowns, visors, goggles, those kind of things, still quite meaningful gaps that have to be closed. But a lot of orders have been put out to bring those in. We've had some really chilling, in a way, uh, interviews on Inside COVID-19 with people on the front line, doctors in ICUs. They say that the stats that they're getting from Italy and other parts of the world are that health workers who are working in ICU and repeatedly exposed to COVID-19, that up to 20% of them are not going to make it. I'm no expert on any of that, Alex. So I think what I could say is that Italy is the very worst of it because what you had there is severe epidemic in an extremely unprepared healthcare system with limited equipment and protection at the beginning. So I would imagine that here, both because we've had much more time to prepare healthcare workers, health professionals, nurses, and others who are, are going to staff the ICUs have learned huge numbers of lessons from all over the world, and they're continuing to do that. So they'll hopefully have the equipment, but it's not just the equipment. I think it's all kinds of protocols that they would have learned about what to do and what not to do, that very few of them will get sick, never mind die. So I would hope that what happens here is a small fraction of 20%, close to zero, would be the ideal outcome. But as I say, I'm really not an expert on, on that specific issue. But hence the focus on getting this equipment to healthcare workers because oh, of yeah. the risk that, that exists. Definitely. It's a huge risk. And not just for ICU, everybody. Your GP working in her rooms, uh, laboratory workers who are taking swabs, nurses and doctors, just, you know, working in a regular hospital because you can't detect every single COVID patient before they arrive in the hospital. Ideally, you should do that, but you often can't. So you need protection for all people um, working in the healthcare system, obviously at different levels. You would be hearing, because all of us are, the critics who say that this thing is being overblown, that we have these uh, people are going to die anyway. I, I saw some excellent research today that came from Kevin Lings, which took the UK's death rate. He said it's very difficult to get stats from around the world. But he shows the UK's death rate over five years, the average, and how it's shot up to more than double the normal number of people who are dying every month in the UK. Is this starting to, to resonate now? Are we starting to understand that uh, um, even the critics that COVID-19 is a killer? Yeah, I mean, I don't place much faith in the arguments of those critics. There's just overwhelming evidence from scientists and from doctors at the front line that this is a terrifying disease. People die, you know, people get cancer and heart disease and they die, but they don't die in the numbers and at the speed um, that people are dying and with the suffering, to be frank, um, that people are dying. And you're talking about, you know, tens of thousands. I saw, I read today that the number of people who've died in the U.S. now exceeds the soldiers who died in the Vietnam War, you know, over the several years of that war. So I don't see any 
good data to support people are going to die anyway. And there is excess mortality, uh, clear evidence. Um, I've seen it in all of Europe and, and North America. There is excess mortality. Interestingly, if you look at the figures right now in South Africa, our mortality is, is below uh, trend. And that's because we're not yet seeing the big numbers of deaths from COVID, but we're seeing dramatic reductions in motor vehicle accidents and, and you know, sort of um, deaths from, from other non-natural causes like um, crime and violence. So we're in this interesting little sweet spot. But in Europe, it's clear excess mortality and, and in the States as well. Something that the president said yesterday and was also reiterated by Archbishop Desmond Tutu about this virus illustrating fractures that you have in society. And I guess in, in our context, in South Africa's context, the healthcare haves and the healthcare have nots. This is, is, is something that it's more philosophical. But from, from where you're sitting, how are you seeing this? We're not seeing it yet here because I think we're at a very early stage of the epidemic. But the evidence from the U.S. and parts of Europe is very stark, which is that it's disproportionately impacting on lower income communities. That's partly, as you say, because they have less access to health care. It's also because for many reasons they are less healthy. They often have high rates of, of being overweight, of having underlying chronic disease, uh, you know, just having had less health care and less opportunity to lead a healthy lifestyle for many years. So I think that that's one issue and that you can clearly see in the U.S. I think South Africa is going to have a double whammy. It's going to have those issues. Uh, you know, people who've been chronically deprived of access to decent health care. It's got a triple whammy, actually. I think the, the, the second is those very same low-income communities in our country are disproportionately impacted by HIV and TB. And although there's no evidence yet, there's definitely concern that those populations will be more vulnerable to the impact of the virus. And the third effect is to socioeconomic conditions. It is already, and it's going to stay harder for people to practice social distancing. And so I think it's almost incontrovertible that that when there are hotspots and community outbreaks, they're likely to be more severe in low-income areas because of living conditions. And so I'd be very surprised if we don't end up seeing, you know, a strong correlation between socioeconomic status and the impact of the epidemic here when we look back on it in six or 12 months' time. And so in that sense, it does amplify in magnitude, you know, socioeconomic divisions and fractures all over the world, and it's tragic. And presumably something that uh, is occupying the minds of the leaders of the country because it, it's not sustainable. That's right. And to make matters worse, the lockdown, which is the best way to protect everybody in the country, whether you're rich or poor, disproportionately impacts again on low-income communities because they have less cash, Many of them have informal sector jobs who are literally living day to day on the cash they earn. So, you know, I think the government is very worried about all of that. And but trying to balance the need for social distancing and lockdown versus the risk to those communities of economic hardship versus the health risk to them. Like a Gordian knot. And it is. And I, I think that one does have to give credit to the Minister of Health and to the President and the people around them. It's, you get the impression that they are 
listening hard to the scientists and grappling in the right way with incredibly tough decisions. There is no, you know, people who are super confident that their way is the best way out of this. I don't think you should trust anybody who's overconfident. It's just really very difficult. And I guess these forecasts have to be updated day by day, you know, week by week. On a broader perspective, Gigi Alcock, who appears on our programs often and is, is very in touch with the informal communities, was saying that his feedback is that fear is now starting to spread through parts of South Africa, particularly in the lower income areas. And we've got a really interesting uh, clip later in the program this evening from Bob Schiller, the Nobel Prize winner, who says that the impact of fear on the human psyche should not be underestimated in this pandemic. Are we starting to see that and, and what should we look out for? And indeed, is there anything we can do about it? Now, it's a good question, Alec. And, you know, I don't know uh, any facts about where the fear is spreading. I think to the extent that we've had any subjective impressions in the last weeks, it's been anecdotal, but a sort of sense of unreality, even in low-income areas, maybe particularly in low-income areas. Of, I've seen many vox pops on television and people saying, where's this disease? I can't see it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been the impression in the past. It's definitely starting to manifest in parts of our country. Kai Leach has been cited as one example, but there are others. It wouldn't surprise me if fear is starting to spread because it's something we should all fear. I'm not a psychologist or mental health professional, so I don't really know what the impact of fear on the human psyche means. There's a good side of it, which is it, it may motivate people to obey the lockdown and social distancing requirements. You know, I say to all of my family and friends, we really should be fearful of this virus. It's very easy to be blasé. You just can't predict who it's going to impact very badly on or who will breeze through it. Nobody can predict that. So I think there's an element in which fear is not a bad thing. Of course, if there's too much fear, it can lead to panic, and then who knows? You know, communities really are going to need strong leadership then. And um, I do think the president's been doing that, but he can only do so much. So thus far, uh, he seems to have played his hand, a very weak hand and difficult hand in certain circumstances, quite well. Uh, what needs to be done from here? I think more of the same. So, you know, we've got to, I guess, gradually lift this lockdown in a very scientific way. It's very hard, as I said. There's more work to do on readying the healthcare system, a lot more, although the delay and the flattening of the curve that's been achieved, I think, is created in you know, a significant space for doing that. The, the current model suggests that the epidemic will peak here sometime between you know, late July and September. So we've bought ourselves months, actually, to prepare. And there's more of that preparation that has to be done, including bringing in equipment, constructing additional facilities, training the teams of health professionals. So I think it's more of that. But then there is a, a lot to do, Alec, in my view, on figuring out smart ways to get people back to work in ways that can sustain the their livelihoods and the economy, but at the same time doesn't just lead to resurgence of the epidemic, which it could easily do. You know, you, it's so easy to burst out again. And I think this is a problem that's going to be with us till there's a vaccine, um, until the population is vaccinated. And I can't imagine that's much less than 18 months to 24 months away. 
So until then, there's this vigilance required and careful lifting of lockdown and sustained social distancing habits. I think it's going to change the way everything works for the next two years. Um, I would imagine many businesses that can continue to function from home need to continue doing that. And so I think those are all the things that need to be done. As you heard from Dr. Brumberg, the virus looks set to highlight continuing income inequalities in South Africa. My colleague Linda van Tilburg takes up that story. On Monday on Freedom Day in South Africa, President Cyril Ramaphosa said that the coronavirus was highlighting the country's stark inequalities. This was echoed by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who said that the virus has done the country what he called a ghastly favour by exposing the unsustainable foundations on which it is built, and he said that it should be urgently fixed. This is not only the case in South Africa, but also within Western societies, especially those in the United States and the United Kingdom, where poorer populations appear to be more likely to die from COVID-19. Dr. Sandra Gallo, the Dean of Boston University's School of Public Health, told Bloomberg's Carol Masser that the virus exposes fractures in societies. When the pandemic first started, there were a lot of conversation about how the virus does not discriminate, it affects everybody. But it didn't take long for us to realize that the virus does discriminate, that yes, we are all at risk of the virus, but ultimately those who are more at risk are those who are marginalized, who are poor, who are people of color, who live alone, who are single parents, and those who die are those same groups. So what we're seeing is a world where groups that are vulnerable do not even have protections from something as widespread as a pandemic like this. And and you're hearing this from data emerging from cities all over the country and really from all over the world. So uh, I certainly hope that this is a wake-up call for us that says, even in the context of a pandemic, we have created conditions where health haves and health have-nots deviate at a time like this. About about 40 years ago, this is important to, to, to note, the, the American health, American health was among the best of the high-income world. Now, today, we are square, squarely the worst, we have the squarely the worst health of any of our high-income country peers. So we have uh, life expectancy is shorter, we have higher deaths from infectious disease, higher deaths from, non, from uh, non-communicable disease. And we leave about five years of life expectancy on the table mm. compared to other countries. So, you know, I, I would ask you and ask anybody listening, you know, we have chosen, we have chosen to leave five years behind in life expectancy. And now you may be saying, well, I didn't choose that, but we did. You did and I did because we have we have voted for policies that allow that to happen. So it's been about the past 30 to 40 years where our health as a country has been getting progressively worse. And it has brought us to a place where when something like this happens, it reveals this underlying truth. Now, this truth is with us at all times. The virus did not create it. The virus is just exposing it. If we really wanted to tackle this, we would say, how do we create a world where everybody has access to high quality education to allow us to change people's life trajectories? That everybody has access to stable housing, where we have a fair economy such such that people who work hard can get jobs that puts them on the right track. And all of that ultimately would add up to creating much better life trajectories for people. We need to say 
this is a moment in time which has exposed these underlying inequities and which shows us that there is a country of health haves, which is roughly the richest 20%, and health have-nots, which is roughly the poorest 80%, and say, that is not the kind of country we want to live in. Now, we do not want to live in that kind of country because that is wrong. And secondly, because if there is another outbreak like this, it threatens us all. So we're beginning to see with this outbreak that if some of us are vulnerable, all of us are vulnerable. And if this is not a wake-up call, a moment in time, I don't know what is. So number one is who gets the virus, right? So we are seeing that minorities, people who are marginalized, are more likely to get infected. Now, why is that? Well, that's simply a function of the fact that it's harder to physically or socially distance if you have to go to work, if you have to ride public transit, if you cannot work from home. All of those are factors that put you in contact with the virus, make you more likely to get it. So that's step one. Now, once you have the virus, the people, again, who are in marginalized groups, uh, disadvantaged groups, are more likely to die. That is probably a reflection of the fact of greater underlying health conditions, right. greater morbidity underlying. So when you understand that, then the question becomes, how do we deal with those two aspects? Well, I think on the first aspect, we need to make sure as reopening happens that we have a clear risk stratification, that people who are most at risk are most protected. Now, what does that mean? That means saying that if we are doing physical spacing, diffusing physical density, that we particularly respect people who are at higher risk because they have underlying conditions, and that we make sure that we put in place opportunities for people who otherwise would be brought face-to-face with greater risk of transmission to work from home or not to be at work and still get paid for it. Now, you know, all of this is hard, but they represent fundamental changes in employment that we should be making anyway. And and we, we should be using this as a moment to hold ourselves up to a mirror and say, how should we be structuring employment so that it's fair, reasonable, and sustainable for all of us? You know, are we going to be consistently, constantly faced with these types of viruses, um, Dr. Galea? You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to say, right? These, mm. these viruses, in some respects, are not new. What, what has been new about this one is that uh, it has spread quickly and also that we were aware of it. I mean, when you look back to, say, the Hong Kong flu, which was about 50 years ago, it was very similar to this one, and it killed more people than, than, than COVID is going to kill. That was 50 years ago, let alone, of course, the great Spanish flu, which was 100 years ago. So it, it's a question of, to some extent, there's randomness and there's luck in it as to whether or not there will be another virus like this two years from now, five years from now, or 10 years from now. But the fundamental approach we should take is to say, what should we be doing to mitigate it if there is and when there is another virus? And we should be doing two things, right? Number one is we should make sure that we have public health infrastructure that allows us to rapidly test, contact trace, screen, treat, isolate as needed to contain the spread. This is number one. Number two is we should be paying attention to these issues we're talking about on this call, which is paying attention to the fact to make sure that we do not have an unhealthy population to begin with, making sure that we do not have a large proportion of people in the population who are essentially sitting ducks for getting really sick when a virus hits and becoming a reservoir of disease for all of us. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Nobel Prize winner and Yale professor Bob Schiller is widely regarded as one of the best economists in the world, and he certainly was one of the few to have warned about the U.S. housing market bubble before it burst. Business.com's Linda van Tilburg picks up on some profound COVID-19 insights from this beautiful mind. 
Markets are generally easily spooked, and lately there has been plenty of reason for investors to sit back, turn to cash, as stock markets have been on a roller coaster ride, with some days being compared with the lowest of low days of the Great Depression and the credit crunch. Only the bravest have ventured forward, and only if it is a sure bet. But has this altered the appetite for risk permanently and changed the psyche of investors forever? Nobel laureate and Yale professor Robert Schiller told Bloomberg what effect fear has on the human psyche.、Uh, I wouldn't use the word permanently, but maybe for years. Yeah, the psychologists talk about something called the affect heuristic, and that is a tendency for people when they're frightened by something、uh, to to the, the fear extends. Do many things in their lives, even things that are unrelated to it. So this pandemic has scared us.、Uh, it has us wondering <laughs> whether we'll survive another couple of weeks. That's that's quite a scare, and it's going to affect other 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 things like the stock market or the housing market.、Uh, we'll see about these things. Yeah, Professor Schiller. One more question, if we could, in too short a visit today. How does exuberance come back? There's lots of people pushing against Robert Schiller right now, saying exuberance is gone, and yet you and I know your study of history is always, in every case, exuberance returns. Right. How right. does it do that? How does it do that? Well, this is one of the mysteries of human psychology that that、uh, it's called animal spirits.、Uh, you there's a Desire for adventure, and there's a desire, an optimistic bias that comes back eventually.、Uh, yeah. So, and after 1929, we had the stock market coming really right back up into like 1936 or so,、uh, almost all the way up in、uh, real terms,、uh, and then it, it sank again. <laughs> so,、uh, these things are still are not. Fully understood, but it does have something with the human spirit. Inside COVID nineteen, Trumpers news. One of our best-read stories of the past week was Felicity Duncan's focus on what is happening in the source city of the coronavirus, Wuhan. Here's some more on the subject this time from Linda and our partners at Bloomberg. We are all looking forward to a time when we can just feel normal again and free again. And every country in the world is looking at what happens in nations that were struck by COVID-19 before them to get some pointers. Wuhan was the epicenter of the pandemic where it all started, and the city has reopened. But as Bloomberg's Andy Brown describes it, it's not the city of the future that we are all striving for. It's a dystopian version of a city of the future, and not one that will go down well with democratic societies like South Africa. So this is the epicenter, or was the original epicenter of the, you know, COVID-19、uh, epidemic, which turned into a into a pandemic, and and the city has、um, has reopened. After a fashion, and you know, it's a right now. Wuhan is, is is a lesson to the world about how you go about reopening. And you know, there's so many. There's this sort of easy feeling in in the West, in the United States, in Europe, that somehow you sort of flip a switch and you go back to life as it was before. And the lesson from Wuhan is that. 
Um, that's just a fantasy. It's a dream. Um, you know, life in Wuhan is grim. It's a, it's a facsimile of life. Um, you know, uh, the, the sacrifices and the costs of reopening that city are very high. And it means accepting, in, in Wuhan's case, a degree of intrusion uh, of the state into individual life, which is just unthinkable. Um, you know, in, in, in the United States or other democracies. Um, you know, and it's not just Wuhan. It's, it's, you know, the experience generally in East Asia opening up is similar. So, you know, Hong Kong, you've got these electronic monitoring bracelets. Taiwan will monitor your, your cell phone if you're in quarantine. South Korea, you know, will publish vast amounts of data about about individuals who are suspected of carrying the virus or, or who have it um, and will publish this nationally um, in a way which would be you know sort of outrageous um, to 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 countries in the West but I guess you know our, our story it was a very good story out of Wuhan is just is sort of a uh, it's a kind of a wake-up call. It's yeah. saying, you know, you really need to rethink about what, you know, what are the consequences and, and, and what sacrifices are you ready to make in order to go back to, to some version of, 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 of normal life. You know the world very well. You just gave some, some really good examples. What's your sense of how Americans and Europeans will deal with some of these measures that you've described? I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it's perhaps there is a halfway house. Perhaps there is a sort of a, a an opening light or a, a sort of a less intrusive um, way of, of reopening safely. But I guess the you know the question is that this needs to be um, there needs to be a debate. I mean, people need to decide what they're ready to accept the restrictions and the intrusions that they're ready to accept and and whether where the guardrails are, where the red lines are. And I'm just not seeing that, that debate. Right. Um, you know, but, but also the, this sort of um, just the tenor, the quality of life, that I'm not sure people, you know, if you, the, our, our reporting was very vivid out of, out of Wuhan. Our reporters went through factories and discovered these sort of silent sort of dystopian places where workers are not allowed to talk to each other um, when they're having lunch uh, in case they inadvertently sort of, you know, spread the virus. And the elevators are closed and the workers have got to walk upstairs. And constant, constant vigilance, sort of hyper-awareness of the danger, this sort of you know, it's this specter of disease that shadows everybody. So you can go to a, you can go to a, you know, a, a Starbucks in, in Wuhan, but if you sit there, you're going to be told by security guards, um, you know, keep your distance, and they're going to tell you to, to readjust your face masks after you've taken a, yeah. a sip of coffee. You know, and that's after you've, you know, everybody in, in, in China is, is color-coded, right? I mean, so you've got a, you've got a COVID-19 status. It's green, it's yellow, or it's red, you know, and, 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 and there's a QR code, there's a barcode for this. You swipe in. So, you know, this is having swiped into to, to Starbucks, having, having revealed your COVID-19 status, you're still treated, you know, as, as though you're, you're sort of in, in, in some kind of a lockup.
been episode 27 of Inside COVID-19. You can access every episode by subscribing on Spotify or iTunes or by downloading the BizNews podcast app in the Apple or Android app stores. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.